Hey folks, the conversation you're about to hear is a little over a year old now, and the reason it took this long to air was because it was more a personal therapy session for me that Matt was very helpful in guiding me through. You might have heard me reference in previous episodes some of the issues that I've had with spiritual trauma and leaving the church and so on, but we have tried to avoid making this show about personal problems that we're having and make it more about universality and empathy. But this issue doesn't feel quite as personal to me now. I've, I've worked through it and given it the space to be not just a part of my story. And if it happens to be a part of your story too, you may be interested in the announcement that we're going to make at the end of this conversation. We have something in the works that we want to be able to invite our listeners to participate in. So if you've ever found yourself in a situation where ideological frameworks feel doctrinal or dogmatic to you, and you want to do the work to move beyond that, then stay tuned for the announcement at the end. And do reach out to us and let us know. Enjoy the show. So maybe we should start by saying that you don't know what we're going to be talking about tonight. I do not, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're going to be talking about spirituality and specifically the contextualization of self within the confines of religion and different schools of spirituality. Okay. Yeah. So here's what I'm finding is that I don't think I'm a spiritual person in the way that I sometimes believe myself to be. Okay. I think that at my most spiritual, I am not in fact feeling a spiritual calling or a spiritual inclination. I'm actually just being an anti-fundamentalist. That's a cool distinction to make though. I think so. Because when I feel like I'm going through a spiritual phase, it's an explorative phase. Yeah. It's me trying to absorb a lot of ideas, a lot of philosophies, a lot of teachings, a lot of writings. And I think it's the, it's with the hope of edifying myself. But what I always catch myself thinking is that it's actually with the hope of proving fundamentalists wrong. Not proving them wrong, but being able to argue well mm -hmm. with fundamentalists. If I'm ever studying up on the Gospels... Sure, there's a lot of beauty to be found there. Yeah. But I want to be able to hold my own in a debate against somebody who has a fundamentalist reading of the Gospels. Yeah. So I read a lot about mm -hmm. Christianity. I listen to podcasts about Christianity, most of which are hosted by people who are Reformed Christians or progressive Christians. Mm -hmm. And what I've found is that I don't have the same story as them because I don't have instances of faith community and belonging in my adult years that I feel that I've lost. Yeah. This is all limited to childhood years for me. Okay. And I'm like, well, why do the beliefs and the practices of my youth even belong in my adult life? And I don't think that they do. And I don't think that I need to reform them to make them fit there. No. Now what I'm grateful for is that in reading what I read and listening to what I listen to, I'm able to pick up this vocabulary that allows me to participate in conversations about spirituality and about religion yeah. that for a long time I didn't think I had the right to participate in. And I'm grateful for that. But I'm feeling like, I want to be careful how I phrase this because 
it's not that I'm feeling like I don't have any business being a spiritual person or calling myself one. Yeah. Because there's a certain kind of spirituality that I call spirituality and others might not. Yeah. But I'm feeling like, although I've felt gratified in being able to reclaim Christianity for myself and relearn the lessons that I lost in my youth, I don't know that I need them. Because I don't know that I've ever needed to contextualize myself within the language or lexicon of Christianity, nor do I need to be juxtaposed against Christianity mm. by taking part in any spirituality or belief system that is fulfilling to me. So I guess that's my that's my monologue intro. Okay. So I feel like in the beginning of this, we should define, like, what does spirituality mean to you? If you had to give it your own Merriam-Webster style definition. My definition of spirituality for the past few years has been the way in which you choose to participate in the world given the conditions of the world to which you belong. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, do you think that that is inherently involved with any religious track? Like, do you think that there is something about Christianity where, like, if you don't, like something that's causing those two things to not fit together, basically, independent of your experiences with it. I don't think that it's exclusive to Christianity. I don't think that it's exclusive to religion. Mm -hmm. I think that it's the thing I've been unable to do within the confines of Christianity. So this is something that is instilled in me, not something that is inherent to yeah. religion. So that's why I just think that it's not the answer. I, th I think that my ability to participate lies outside of the confines of religious lexicon and religious practices and especially labeling. I guess my resentment is just that it's expected that you are something. How do you mean? I remember when my mom asked me, are you still an atheist a couple years ago? Okay, yeah. And I don't remember ever claiming to be an atheist, but apparently I had at one point. Yeah. And I was like, I, I don't see how I can answer that question. Because to answer yes means that I give validity to the idea of atheism. And to answer no means that I give validity to the idea of Christianity, when really these are just ideas that happened to pop up. Yeah. <laughs> and gain traction. And... I don't think that that's been all good, and I don't think that that's been all bad. Yeah. But why do I have to be either one? Yeah, exactly. I didn't choose for religion to be a part of this world. And it's silly to me that I'm expected to choose some label to apply to myself and to give other people to call me. Yeah. Just because of something that became popular thousands of years before I was born and happened to stick. And I also don't think you choose to question something like that. Those kinds of things just sort of start to gnaw at you. I think like regardless of background, there's things about this world that you just, you, you'll naturally start to question if you're given long enough to like think about them or to interact with them. And it'll be colored by your experience. But yeah, I mean, it is, it's kind of nuts to put a binary label on it like that. Like if you're not, it's the kind of a, you're either with us or you're against us type of yeah. thing. And I think we touched on this when we were talking about the difference between spirituality and religion. That's what I'm gleaning from this, at least just first takes, is a lot of that same kind of stuff where 
there's that sense of the community and the culture and the the way that you were brought up and the fact that like those things mean something but then the fact that you're also you're an individual like you're a person with freedom of thought and you question things and you're introspective and it sucks that like a lot of times those two things do not dovetail as well as we'd like them to or as well as it seems like they're supposed to yeah i mean the way that i make sense of this is basically i lost something that i was a part of when i was a kid yep i lament that loss and the easiest way to stop lamenting is to take what I already have a foundation for and reclaim it. But I don't identify with that foundation at all. I recognize a familiarity in it, and that feels comfortable to me sometimes. Most of the time, it doesn't. Yeah. At certain times of the year, I'm more prone to this kind of investigative playing around in the texts and studying and, again, edifying myself. But... Most of the time, I'd say that that doesn't bring me any spiritual fulfillment. It's only at certain times of the year, and it's only at certain times when I feel spiritually thirsty, I suppose, mm. or spiritually restless. And when it does the best for me is when it reminds me of the universality of suffering and emotion and hopefully compassion, but it's so not the only thing that can do that. Yeah. And I don't think that we ever would have needed Christianity or needed any type of religious lexicon to demonstrate that for us, to demonstrate that universality for us. I think that makes a lot of sense, though. Like That sounds like a, a kind of a healthy thing Yeah. to me. I mean, swap out any number of religious icons or texts or, or sects or tracts or anything with like like an album or something like that, like something that is just a lot more transitory and fleeting and that nobody would bat an eye at defining that way. You know, it, it would seem kind of natural if you said, like, I was raised on Nick Drake and that was that was it. And then one day you started realizing there's other genres, there's other albums, there's other things like that. But then there's still times a year where you circle back and it hits you in a very meaningful way. Mm -hmm. You know, there would be a harmony to that. It would kind of make sense personally and I, this might be because i was raised secularly so i didn't have the community identity attached to it and a lot of the the formal aspects of religion were absent from my life but i've always thought that that was a cool thing about a lot of this type of of wandering and thinking is that so many different cultures and so many different backgrounds and people have tried to reason through a lot of the same universal problems yeah. And after a while, you can be kind of your own guide in those ways where you can spend a month just going through the Buddhist ones and just figuring out some of those lines of thought and then flip to Christianity and then flip to atheism. And, then you know, you can move around however you need to, to like kind of be what you need to be. But it does come at the um, expense of that community. And that's where I think I sometimes get caught up in... Like, what am I trying to replace? Yeah. What am I actually lamenting and what am I trying to replace and create? Is How much community have I lost and how much was that because of beliefs that I forsaked? Forsook? Forsaked. <laughs> <laughs> I like forsook. That sounds like a German word, forsook. <laughs> so how much of it is community-based? How much it, of it is family-based 
I think that's most of it. Yeah. And how much of it is that spiritual thirst or hunger or whatever I said before that I sometimes feel and I need to kind of fill that void with something. I guess I fill it with language. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense because like if there's anything, if there's one language that I speak well, it is the language of metaphor. Yeah. So when I really get going on a spirituality kick and I'm doing the studying and I'm, that's the thing, like (laughs) I've talked a lot about being an Enneagram five and wanting to study and wanting to learn and being really bad at practicing. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of probably what I get out of it the most. When I'm really doing the work on my best days, I'm engaging with metaphor. And so it feels the same. It feels as fulfilling as when I'm doing what I would consider my version of spirituality the best. Yeah. Which is engaging with metaphor in my own writing. Yeah. And that's how I feel that I'm best able to participate in the world. There's just no religious reference for it. There's no confines to be within but that feels better than being within confines, even though those confines often offer you a very valuable sense of community Mm -hmm. that I seldom feel because I choose not to be within them. Yeah. Well, I think it's still, they're separate issues, but they're both kind of valid too, you know, like the, because think about the the Siddhartha story. I mean, Mm -hmm. like he's the archetype for the whole, this whole type of thinking of just, he hung out with the Brahmins for a while and then he kind of broke with that for after it got, you know, he, he kind of felt that lust again to try to figure out some more things about the world. Then he went with the ascetics and, you know, he, he bounced around a lot. He even bounced in and out of the legitimate spiritual practices of the day where most people would assume that they'd arrived and he left friends in them and and left his kid in them. I mean, he, he went all over the place and, my biggest takeaway from that was that like spirituality can be in the aching as well. You know, it isn't always in the, the peace. It it can also be in that deep sense of unrest that puts you back into motion or keeps you from ever stopping. And it's weird because it seems all the definitions of it seem like they should bring you comfort in the short term on some level, but I think it can be just as profound in those gaps. But you, again, you, you don't get the warmth of a community necessarily which is its own thing and sucks in its own right. But they they ebb and they flow and they come together, but they also kind of break apart. I like that. It's not necessarily ever a comfortable place to be when you're in those gaps. No. But I I think that's sometimes how you know that you're not living your best, and that's sometimes how you know that you need to acknowledge that something is greater than you and you need to participate in it. Yep. So that's always a blessing, you know, when that, whenever that occurs. But there's a solitude to that, too. Yeah. And sometimes that solitude is a peaceful place to be, and sometimes it's the loneliest, most deserted place to be. But at the end of the day, I mean, all that can really be said about it is that it's solitary. So it's kind of... Yeah. It's objective. It's just a stark contrast against whatever is going on. And if, yeah, and if you're in the headspace or if the circumstances are such that you want that solitude and you're reveling in it, then it'll be pleasurable. But if you're cast out in the cold, it's a horrible, horrible experience. But I think you can even count in just the ways where you're actually the one 
you're filling that gap. Because I mean, all of the great religious teachings were kind of usually written by somebody who was in that gap alone, cast out on some level, figuring their shit out. Yeah. And I mean, it seems so massive to like, like it's hard to think of that on an individual level. Like to think about the idea of like Jesus before he was Jesus. Right. Like that was just a guy trying to figure shit out. But now, you know, it hates on so much more meaning. But I think all of us can experience little individual microcosms of those types of feelings, which is why so many of these things are so universal that you might be the one to smooth over that gap for the next person so that they don't need to occupy it. Or it might be a completely solitary experience that happens in a vacuum, but there's something that happens when you wander. You know, what we missed out on, because I don't think either of us were as well-read on it as we should have been, maybe you're familiar with this, but Sartre said about existentialism, he said, if there is a creator, essence comes before existence, Mm -hmm. meaning we are conceptualized in the mind or in the eye of a creator before we come to exist. And so who we are to be has already been decided. So our essence exists before we do but if you flip the script if there is no creator then existence comes before essence which means we get to choose our own essence Mm. which also means that we acknowledge that everyone is choosing their own essence so i guess what this comes down to is the idea of acceptance Mm. because it's very hard to create your own meaning and have that meaning be accepted by your peers by your community by your family etc when what is considered meaning is contextualized within what already is. Mm. And I guess the idea of, of being progressive, whether politically or spiritually, would imply that you can assign a label to yourself but believe that that label isn't done being defined. Yeah. And I think accepting the shortcomings of institutions as well kind of comes into play because we can't all be trusted to take these leaps of faith in unison, you know? So like in order for there to be a group predicated on these beliefs, then there has to be a certain amount of lag almost in terms of the actual like intellectual vanguard to it in order for these people to, the people who are part of it to experience the comfort that they're seeking there. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's kind of almost accepting that like, the more you come to terms with it as an individual and the more that you explore, the further you'll be ahead of that pack at certain points just by virtue of the fact that there is a pack. And when you go back into that pack, you have to kind of like be at peace with the fact that you're either going to have to kind of smile and nod, for lack of a better phrase, at certain points, but that's not necessarily a superficial thing. Like it's a superficial act, but it's kind of concealing a, a deeper love or respect for for the people that you're around Mm. or it's just a, an acknowledgement of a need that you have to be in this group, but that those two things kind of can be mutually exclusive just by virtue of the fact that they are so often, you know? Well, and it's also, you know, a few months ago I was almost ready to say, sure, I'm a progressive Christian now because I agree with so much of what I've read. Yeah. But that's not true. 
what's true is that I agree that Christianity should be progressive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, another way to categorize this movement is non-dual. Am I ready to classify myself as a non-dual Christian? Mm. Well, no, because I don't feel the need to be a Christian, but I do believe that Christianity should be non-dual. Mm-hmm. I do believe that a dualistic way of seeing things spiritually or even politically or in any arena of life is harmful. Mm-hmm. But then I look at that and I say, okay, by calling yourself a non-dual Christian, you are inherently acknowledging a duality between you and dualistic Christians. <laughs> <laughs> And it's the same with anything. If I call myself progressive politically, I'm accepting a duality between progressive and fundamental. Yeah. And I don't always want that duality to exist because it makes me combative. It makes me, again, do all the studying just in hopes that I can win debates. Yeah. It makes me feel like I'm compensating for the things that I have lost and lamented in my life being faith and community and structure. So as much as I want to approach things non-dualistically, and as much as I do, as much as it is in my nature to do so, I don't know that I feel that I can apply that to religion or spirituality because when I do, I'm instantly letting duality in. So I feel like the best answer is for me to just bail on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, bail on which aspects of it? Trying to still be a part of the conversation, which isn't the right answer, and I know that. And it's not the right answer because I'm someone who can engage in metaphor Mm. in my own way. And if I can, and that helps anyone with their own spiritual hunger, then I should. Well, what if it was the right answer even just in this moment? You know, like I had a good friend of mine told me he went through a similar thing with, with music where he it was his lifeblood forever and it, it saved his life numerous times. I mean, it, it was everything. And he got to this point where it was becoming kind of corrupted and he felt that he wasn't doing it for the right reasons. He felt that it wasn't bringing him the same peace and fulfillment that it always had. It had just essentially gotten so muddy and faithless that he basically decided one night, like, I'm going to let go. Like, from this moment on, I'm going to treat it as though I have stopped and it may never come back. And he said, like, he had to do that and it was the scariest thing he's ever done in his life but he had to completely let go and he did. And for like a couple of months, it sounds like he was kind of in a bit of a free fall where he was just like, Oh Jesus Christ, it might never come back. But eventually it did. And what came back, I didn't see him during those months either. I saw him before and and after. And he was a resolved man when I saw him again. Wow. I mean, it was noticeable like from the jump, like he was, absolutely not fucking around creatively like he wasn't before so it was amazing to even see that change happen but he had this kind of like this serenity about stuff and all of the stuff that he was anxious about and worried about with regard to his own music was 
he just seemed so much more secure in a lot of it. And that's kind of how he talked about it is like at the time he needed to leave that conversation because his vocabulary was too limited basically. And if you think about it like a literal conversation, you know, if you only know like 10 words and you're, you just keep saying them over and over, you're only going to be able to cut that conversation a hundred different ways. But if you take a few months off and, and read a shitload and then come back, you're going to be looking at that thing from a thousand new angles. So maybe it's even something like that. And he described it too, like the, it was the finality of it that gave it the significance in that moment. It was the fact that he wasn't saying I'm taking a break because that's just dog earing that same initial crisis. So it was that trust in letting go and knowing that basically it's that old cliche, but like if it's meant to be, it will come back kind of a thing. Maybe it's something like that where you're right for saying that you need to bail because whatever you're using right now just isn't effective in the ways that you want it to be. And kind of just have that trust in like, although it's terrifying, the the fact that you'll either find the implements that you need or you realize you won't need them and that you never needed them. Yeah, I think you're right. And I resonate a lot with that story. A similar thing happened to me. Where like I, I didn't ever completely stop making art, but it stopped meaning the same thing for me. Like there was this... I'm not playing with any ambition. Yeah. I'm not writing with any ambition. Mm-hmm. There wasn't the same ego behind it. There wasn't the same desperation behind it. And I finally landed one day on um, something. Okay, so <laughs> I hate to be scatterbrained about this, but I'll, I'll tie this together. So I was telling you off, Mike, that I'm currently reading The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, Yep, which is a book about how artists need to battle resistance and resistance can take many forms such as procrastination and excuses and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And there's one chapter in this book about how the artist and the fundamentalist are opposites because the fundamentalist believes that what needed to be done has already been done. Mm -hmm. And the artist believes that no, there's still more to create. And an artist is inherently a progressive person in that sense. And he says that the difference is the artist believes that they need to co-create the world alongside God. Mm. And I read that chapter a day after I thought to myself, I guess I'm just an atheist now. (laughs) (laughs) And I read that and I was like, oh yeah, that's totally what I believe. Okay. I don't necessarily call it God, but sure. Yeah. So I immediately went back to this moment in 2016 that I had when I realized that the reason that I make art is to create empathy. Because every time you create, every time you write a lyric that is a metaphor, and metaphor is inherently something that the masses are meant to understand. Mm-hmm. And therefore, any any metaphor that is new creates new empathy. Yeah. If it's identifiable and relatable to more than just you, then it is a new empathy that you're creating. It is a new connection, a new strand of empathy, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I had this realization, and it's why I still make art in the way that I make art. And it's why there isn't as much ego and desperation in my work anymore. 
but I didn't lose faith in the process and I didn't lose faith in my ability. It's because I had that same thought. I have to co-create the world with God. Mm. I didn't call it God back then, but I made the connection that metaphor equates to empathy. Mm. And the only way to exist in a world <laughs> that you perceive as godless or that you perceive as one in which you are a solitary figure is to reach as far as you can for the next person in line that understands. So, being raised in a secular household, how do all of these concepts resonate with you? I mean, they make sense to me objectively, because again, the only thing I can't really speak to is the the experiential base of like knowing what that community was like as a thing that you can rely on, as a thing that you were judged by. You know, I never had that context, but I was always, I was raised secularly, but my family always kind of flirted with the idea of religion. And my dad especially was always trying to kind of expose us to different elements of spirituality. And, and he was the first one that sort of blew that wide open to me that they can be separate, you know, cause he was always reading, um, Taoist books and he was into the idea of myth. And I went to, he like just took me to a church one time. I forget why it might've even been for a, a project or something, but there was some reason that I ended up in a church and we were just hanging out in there, looking at the architecture, watching a mass, you know, just kind of he taught me how to view it in like an exploratory way. So I think I took in a lot of stuff, but I, I never felt fully connected in a way where I felt like I wanted to rest anywhere. And I'm not sure if that's my background or just my wiring, but I've never found a spiritual or religious track that I haven't been deeply interested in or felt some degree of comfort through. But with the exception maybe of Confucianism, that never really resonated with me as much. I can uh, respect it, but I never liked the idea of like piety and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, I always have had kind of a reverence for, for religion and, and I have always felt spiritual, but I've never felt like I could call whatever the hell I am anything. So yeah, I've never felt a real comfort from it beyond the fact that I just, I feel a sense of agency with it that I definitely call upon a lot. Like there are times when I've prayed, like in times of serious crisis, that's typically my ace in the hole where I'm just like, okay, whatever's out there, this is my last transmission. Like I need some fucking help. Like there have been those moments. There have been moments where I'm in nature and I feel so connected to whatever's around me that it feels kind of like the Taoist, that whole approach to the world. And a lot of that logically makes a lot of sense. I think if I had to boil it down to one thing, Buddhism is probably the most closely aligned with whatever my whole trajectory and worldview have been. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, that's a long ass way to answer that. But no, I'm glad that you brought up Taoism, though, because that reminds me of that quote, like that which you can say about the Tao is not the Tao. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess that's kind of a lot of what I'm talking about is like that which I feel cannot be limited to the language of religion and that which I strive to do and strive to know maybe cannot be known because it cannot be expressed in language. 
Yeah. So I, I, I guess that's just a way of saying that I feel like my journey needs to be, at least for a while, a more solitary one. And that I mm-hmm. don't need to look for this type of community. I don't need to look for this type of solidarity. It's nice when I happen upon it, but I don't know that I will ever be invested in it because at this point it doesn't feel like something that I've lost. Mm-hmm. It feels like something that, okay. <laughs> the first time I ever heard smells like teen spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I was like eight years old. I was walking down this side street in my old neighborhood, and there was this kid with a boombox in his front yard. And I remember hearing the chorus, and it was a melody that just immediately spoke to me. And I would sing it in gibberish, like walking around my house, you know, like I I had just an undeniable love for the melody that I heard that day. I didn't know yeah. what any of those words were. Many people still yeah. don't. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> But for a few years, I was I wouldn't say that I was obsessed with that song, but it was like I had caught a glimpse of something. And I didn't know what it was. And a few years later, I was at a block dance in town and the DJ played Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I looked to one of my sister's friends and I was like, oh my God, I, what song is this? I know this song. And she told me, and that changed my life mm. because then I, I felt like a liberation, like something that I identified with, something that found me and wanted me to find it again. The world made sure that happened. Yeah. I feel like I've been trying to look at Christianity that way. I've been trying to look at Christianity as something that I glimpsed when I was younger. And then I forgot about it or it forgot about me. And we just didn't cross paths again for a while. And I'm trying to make it my own. But I think that the conclusion I'm coming to is it's not something that will ever be my own. And I'm just getting closer to being okay with that. Because I think the reason that I wasn't okay with it for a long time is because... I didn't lose my faith. I didn't lose my belief. I lost my community. I lost my sense of belonging. I felt like what was taken from me was a sense of belonging. I didn't feel like what was taken from me was my God. Yeah. And so if I'm not looking for God and I'm only looking for a sense of belonging or a sense of purpose, then that can be found outside of Christianity, which does not feel like something that I can rightly reclaim or rightly participate in if I'm not sold on it. If I'm insisting that it has to be progressive, that it yeah. has to be non-dual, and it has to be anti-fundamentalist, then doesn't that point out some flaws in it being a destination of mine? Yeah, and I mean, that, that's an incredibly important distinction to make, because at least then you'll, you're, you know what you're searching for at that point. Yeah. And that's... Like we were saying earlier, I mean, both feelings are completely valid. You know, like both that feeling of loss and the feeling of belonging that you had there. Yeah, so they're, I think they're both completely valid feelings, but they need to be dealt with in very different ways almost. It strikes me as like, this might be a very kind of a harsh example, but I was thinking about this the other day, but of people that lived in like 
I don't know, Germany or, or London or places like that during World War II. And imagine growing up during that when your hometown and your home and everything that you knew was bombed to shit and people were carted away and you lost everyone and everything that carried that feeling of home. But you lived and then you go somewhere else and it must be such an incredibly strange and poignant feeling to go back or to know that that place exists in your head like it's so real every you remember the smells you remember the chips and the fucking concrete like it's all so real but you go back and it's just a field now or those people no longer exist or anything like that and it seems like a a different example but a similar kind of a thing that that reconciliation that has to happen where you have to be able to kind of accept that like it is real because it was real for you and you were there and it mattered, you know, it had a hand in making you who you are. But at the same time, it's a different paradigm. And both are valid. And it's maybe it's a lifelong thing to get those two points closer and closer together to where it at least feels like reconciliation. But I don't know where peace fits into that. It just seems to me that the searching is the only thing that you can depend on. And that's the strongest weapon you have against that, that pain is the introspection and the just keeping that belief in empathy and in, I guess that's probably what faith is, right? Yeah. Well, what that makes me think is this. What I see is two paths to follow. And one is continue as a progressive Christian, which means that I'm going to be an anti-fundamentalist Christian, which means that I'm going to find myself debating and arguing and resenting people for trying to limit what my faith can be. But then what I'm modeling is kind of positive. Yeah. But what I'm modeling is combativeness. What I'm modeling is argument. On the other hand, the second path is I can still be an anti-fundamentalist, but it's not going to be limited to Christianity. I can still be a non-dual thinker, but it's not going to be limited to paradigms that I disagree with or belief systems that I see as harmful. Yeah. And I can model progressive thinking and progressive action, mm-hmm. humanist action, existentialist action. <laughs> yeah. And I can be a better person in that realm than I can in the realm of Christianity. Because I know that in the realm of Christianity, I'm going to be argumentative because I'm going to be defensive about how my faith differs from the faith of my parents. So I can either have my beliefs and own them, or I can have my beliefs and try to fit them in the box of Christianity. And I guess my main point here is I don't think they can fit. No. So to me, it seems like you could either have your beliefs and own them, or you can have your beliefs and keep trying to fit them. But they, you know, like kind of that action of trying to fit them, not getting them in there for a little while and then breaking with it. So it's basically like how much sustained combat do you want <laughs> in your spiritual yeah. quest versus... Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I don't think there's a wrong answer either because it's discourse, basically. it's There is something to be said for being able to go into that situation and genuinely try to change it and try to steer it in a direction that you think is better for it because you can see a little bit beyond where it is right now. Like that's completely valid, but that's also not the only way. And it does mean that you're going to sacrifice 
that sense of community in a different way. You're kind of going to be sacrificing it in real time, not by letting go. So it's like they're both paths for sure that you just have to, I think you kind of have to be able to own it either way, but it depends on what you want to spend your time doing basically and where you ultimately want to end up and just who you are really. I mean, but neither one's wrong to me. Because they're all, they're all motion. They'll all get you closer to that point where you understand it a little bit more. Every moment that you're thinking about it, you're understanding it a little bit more. You're, you're reasoning with parts of it that you hadn't reasoned with before. So even inaction is kind of action in this case. Yeah, I'd have to agree. But that's the stuff that I, I think it's almost... You can choose in a moment you know, to just to give yourself that decisive like line in the sand feeling, but the end of the day, it'll all be different. Remember we talked about this with, uh, with friends and stuff one time saying that like, we feel like a lot of people would like resent us and we develop this whole narrative about that. And then we walk into a room with that person and we're like, Oh yeah, no, it just kind of shifts. Maybe it'll be even something like that. where not saying that like, you'll feel this way and then you'll walk into a church and it'll be flipped around completely. But I mean, you might realize new angles and new clarity just by being in that situation or by not being in that situation. So there's a certain amount of this that I think you almost would be better suspending and just letting sit there and, and like contemplating it and keeping it where you can see it, but also not feeling like you have to choose one path or another decisively because ultimately who knows? It's so dark out there anyway. You might think you chose one and wind up on the other. Like by letting go, you could come up with such a strong position that you can save the course of progressive Christianity. <laughs> or by trying to do that, you might end up so far out in the friggin' boonies intellectually that you kind of have to renounce it on some level. So it, I guess the point I'm trying to make is like, it's the curiosity, it's the questioning. And that's the thing that will always kind of come to bat for you. So I guess that's where I've landed. Mm. is that at least for the time being, I'm done with the framework and I'm not done with the work. Yeah. But I think the only thing that I'm capable of truly being spiritual about is art. Yeah. Well, it's not just art. It's, I, I remember saying a while back that like food, music, and laughter are what bring people together. Yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is that like the cultivation of those moments, as well as the cultivation of art that seeks to perpetuate those moments, is all I really feel the ability to participate in. Yeah, I mean, that sounds right to me. <laughs> in a way that feels spiritual to me. Yeah. I don't know that it ever feels spiritual to me to get together and talk about plans that God has for us or reinterpreting Bible scriptures. Yeah. Like that can feel gratifying and fulfilling. Sure. But to what is that only feeding my ego? Because now I have a, a, a better understanding of something that I can then take into a debate. Yeah. I'm repeating myself at this point, but <laughs> I guess this is where I've landed. Yeah. I mean, I think the participating in art in that way is, it's the right degree of humbleness. It's it's really you're not presuming anything. You know, that's it's like it's kind of just the most abiding way that you can face the world. Like you're you're not trying to assert anything on anyone or any aspect of life. You're 
not trying to proclaim that you know anything that you don't. You're just, there's this very simple cause and effect of living that way. I think it's that's a completely valid way to live. And they all have their merits. I mean, there's definitely merits to interpreting scriptures, interpreting myths, interpreting other people's suffering. Like, that absolutely has its place, but it scratches a certain itch. And it's not the only itch. Life is fleas, man. <laughs> I think that's a good place to stop. <laughs> and that's our show. If any of this episode resonated with you, you might be interested in the announcement that we have to make, which is that starting Thursday, January 6th, I'm going to be leading a discussion group in collaboration with the Liturgist podcast called A Humanist Perspective. And we'll be examining a lot of the topics that this season has explored so far, being community and ideology and belonging, and looking at where those things cross over and how to really define what serves us as individuals and what fulfills our needs that can be named and understood and achieved outside of the context of any sort of pre-existing framework that we may not feel comfortable engaging with anymore. So if you'd like to participate in a humanist perspective, we'd love to have you. It'll take place over Zoom every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, starting January 6th. And to learn more about how you can tune into it, send us an email, blackmarkettherapypodcast at gmail.com. As always, Black Market Therapy is a dead and mellow production. We wish you all happy holidays, and we'll see you again in the new year. Until then.